this summer, the St. Paul Saints, which is a minor league baseball team up in uh, uh, Minnesota, they held a promotion. They reenacted the famous food fight scene from Animal House in, in the 40th anniversary of that movie. Uh, at the end of the fifth inning, donned in complimentary ponchos, 8,000 fans rose and tossed popcorn, hot dogs, Cracker Jacks, and uh, nachos all over each other. Meanwhile, uh, stadium custodians looked on in agony. <laughs> uh, many of them chose that moment to declare another career path. It was a dream come true for many fans who have always wanted to participate in a real live food fight. Now, in the book of Romans, in the Bible, we read about another real live food fight, a theological argument about, of all things, food. But this food fight wasn't fun, wasn't a dream, it was quite serious, more of a nightmare, actually, and one which threatened the unity and the health of God's people. And what's important for us to understand at the outset is that the food fight in Romans is one that Christians in stadiums everywhere, sorry, in churches everywhere, reenact every day. As you know, one of the things that Christians are very good at is fighting with each other, and in so doing, we make messes. And we don't just get messy, people get hurt, and the work of God suffers. So the Bible's words of instruction to these food-fighting Christians and Romans are important to us. We've been studying Paul's letter to the Romans here at Rooftop the past few months, if you're just joining us, and we're starting a new series uh, here at Rooftop on like the, one of the final sections of Romans. It's called, appropriately enough, Food Fight. Now, if you don't know, uh, Paul is a first century Christian missionary. He was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. He traveled all around the Mediterranean, visiting churches, starting churches, and uh, he really wanted to visit the Christian church in Rome. So he writes them a nice long letter in which he summarizes for them the message of Christianity and uh, offers some counsel on how they can handle some issues and problems that had come up in their congregation. And one of the issues that had come up in their congregation is some tension that had maybe boiled over over the matter of food. So let me go ahead and read you the passage that we're going to study this morning after which we will discuss it. It's Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, as I mentioned, this passage takes place in uh, the end of, of Romans. Paul has, over the course of the book, spelled out the, the good news of Christianity is the message of God's love for us, uh, who condemned sin and its consequences in Jesus Christ, who justifies sinners and who gives us the Holy Spirit 
so that we can be transformed as his people. And as we've been talking about over the past couple months, because of what Jesus has done in dying for our sins and because of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can, we can be changed as people. We can be changed in terms of uh, being able to love one another, being able to you know, submit to authorities, um, being able to not retaliate when, when we are sinned against. And the message of the gospel should also change how we handle conflict with fellow believers. And this is what Paul gets into here. The difficulties that many Christians have in getting along with each other, as the Christians in Rome were apparently having trouble getting along. Now, it's really kind of hard to know what exactly is happening here in Rome, because Paul doesn't give us a ton of details. But what seems to be happening is that different factions of Christians uh, had started arguing over the matter of food. As Paul writes, one man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man eats only vegetables. And what most scholars suppose is that there was a group of Christians in Rome who were very, very strict about what they ate, likely because they followed certain Old Testament uh, Jewish customs and interpretations of certain Old Testament laws. Uh, the Old Testament part of the Bible, if you don't know, it's that part of the Bible written before the life of Jesus. Uh, Jews regarded it as God's word to them, and it has some, some dietary rules and customs that Jews felt very strongly about. So whether it was not eating certain types of meat or whether it was sticking to the Daniel diet and eating just vegetables, many Jews were very careful about their diet. And even after many of the Jews converted to Christianity, these Jewish Christians, these Christian converts, they actually seemed to have kept some of their rules. They thought that by doing so, they were obeying Scripture a little bit more uh, carefully. They were following Jesus a little bit better. And as we'll see later in this passage, their scruples weren't just limited to food, incidentally. They apply to other things, too, like Sabbath observance and special days. So these strict Christians, however, were opposed by what we might call more lenient believers. While the strict Christians kept certain rules and customs, more lenient types worshipped Jesus without feeling like they had to obey those customs. They actually felt like Jesus did kind of die to, 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 to save them from at least having, feeling like they have to obey those customs. They can, but they, don't, they, don't, they know they don't have to. Now, if that's all that's going on, then we're actually okay, right? If, if all we have is like two types of Christians following Jesus in different ways, that'd be fine. But... From what we can tell, that's not all that was happening. Not only were these people approaching faith in different ways, but they were, as far as we can tell, probably bickering about it and thinking bad things about the other. As Paul says, the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. That's probably Paul's instruction because that's what they were doing, looking down on and condemning one another. The strict believers were condemning the lenient believers, and the lenient believers were judging the strict believers. The strict believers were saying, you know, you lenient believers, you need to be better about obeying rules and customs. Otherwise, you know, you're just really probably not genuine Christians. And the lenient believers were saying, yeah, well, you, you, you unsophisticated strict believers, you need to chill out. Not be so legalistic. You need to grow up, get with the times, the strict were telling the lenient that they weren't true Christians, and the lenient were telling the strict that they just looked unsophisticated and dumb. Now, what's important to recognize, before we go much further, is that these Christians were arguing over food, but they really weren't arguing over food. 
They were arguing over theology and the best way they thought to follow Jesus and how you sort of make God happy. And we should understand this because even still today, we argue over food, but we're really not arguing over food. I mean, humans have always eaten, and as long as we've eaten stuff, we've like argued over what to eat. We argue over the best diet, you know, we argue over what we want our children served in their school lunches. We argue over uh, if gluten-free diets really work. We, we argue over whether Splenda is a poison. We, we argue over you know, how big we want the government to let our sodas be. Uh, we like to fight over which is better, the dark meat or the white meat of turkey. Dark meat? I don't know, white meat, big white meat fan. Any dark meat fans out there? You all are stupid losers. <laughs> Not to be judgmental. <laughs> Who would eat that off a turkey? <laughs> Feeling nauseous. <laughs> Humans like to argue over food. We always have. But again, we're not really arguing over, over food. Uh, food is just the weapon we use to feel superior to each other. And that's what these people are fighting about in Rome, the best way to be a Christian. They just happen to be arguing about food because they eat things. <laughs> and this is the situation into which Paul Wades. Now, Paul makes clear who he agrees with. He agrees with the more lenient Christians. You might notice that Paul doesn't call these Christians strict and lenient, right? What does he call them? Weak and strong. And in his understanding, the weak Christians are those who feel like they have to obey their Jewish dietary customs and rules. They're weak because they kind of need those rules to hold on to. And Paul makes clear that he sides with the stronger brothers. Christians can focus on Jesus without feeling like they have to obey certain customs to keep God happy. They're strong because they don't get caught up in, in all those rules. But just because he sides with the stronger, more lenient brothers, doesn't mean that he thinks everybody should do Christianity that way. That's not what he says. He doesn't necessarily say change what you're doing. At least in this Roman's context, he doesn't think it's that important of a deal. He thinks accepting each other's differences and maintaining the unity of the church are far more important. Like he has told the Romans, he says, the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Give it a rest, Paul says. Put down your nachos. Instead of judging and condemning each other, we should accept each other and different people's ways of worshiping Jesus. As Paul writes, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. That word accept it's a very big, important word, and the Greek word for accept, it, accept is actually a somewhat weak translation of that word, a much better, stronger translation might, I mean, when we think of accept, we think of, like, tolerate, put up with, like, coexist in the same room with without getting into an argument. That's kind of what we think of when we think of accept. But the, 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 the word might be better translated, like, welcome gladly. Welcome gladly into your life. Fling the door of your heart and your church and your life open to that person that you disagree with. That should be our attitude when fellowshipping with each other, even those who are different than us. Not to just put up with them, uh, certainly not to bicker with them, but to welcome them gladly. Now, why 
Because, and this is the key, because God has gladly welcomed both the weak and the strong into his presence. God has accepted him, Paul writes. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? God has accepted him. To his own master, he stands or falls. So neither the weak nor the strong answer to each other, but to God, and they should both understand that. I mean, what does it matter uh, what I think of how somebody else is parenting their kids? They're not my children. The answer to their mother or father. What does it matter if I think the, 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 the secretary at First Lutheran down the street is doing a bad job? I mean, she's not my secretary. Who am I to judge somebody else's employee or somebody else's children? Who are we to judge whether someone else is doing Christianity right? We'll let God make that judgment. Now, Paul has a lot more to say about this. The, the passage goes on a while, which gives you an idea of just how important this was to him and uh, how maybe difficult the situation was. And we're going to get to all that in the next few weeks. But that's a basic summary of what's going on. There were strict, weak Christians and lenient, strong Christians who instead of happily fellowshipping together, they were judging and condemning each other and bringing destruction upon the work of God. Instead, they should gladly welcome and learn from each other as God has accepted both of them. Now, hopefully, you're already beginning to make some connections and figure out how this passage applies to our modern situation because I suspect you know that it does. We all get into all kinds of, let's call them food fights, in the church today. They might not be over religious vegetarianism per se, but they are over similar matters. And our disagreements and arguments bear a lot of the same dynamics, so Paul's advice applies to us as much to them. Now, what do I mean? Well, what these Christians were arguing about in Rome is what Paul calls a disputable matter. That's what he says. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. So the Greek word for disputable matters is dialog ismoi. And it can be translated disputable matter. It can be translated doubtful points, or it can be translated matters of indifference. This is a very important phrase that I want to talk about for a little bit. What's a disputable matter? A disputable matter is anything that is not part of the essential substance of Christianity. A disputable matter is something that Christians can disagree on in good faith while still loving and serving Jesus together. I'm sure you know that there are lots of different types of Christianities. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of denominations. Baptist, Catholic, Lutheran, Evangelical, Pentecostal, Messianic, Liberal, Conservative, Methodist. Those denominations and the varieties of Christianity have an incredible amount of cultural, uh, religious, linguistic, historical, theolo theological, even moral diversity. But most of them, most but not all, most of them share a common center 
an essential substance. They share a little sliver of this very complex Venn diagram. And do not be deceived by the smallness of that little center, because it might be small, but it's actually incredibly great in significance. Now, what is that little sliver that identifies them as basically essentially Christian? There is a lot of discussion here about what is the essential substance of Christianity. Church councils have been called over the centuries to try to identify that little sliver of essential Christianity. But to summarize, the essential substance of Christianity is Jesus. As Paul says in Romans 10, this is the word of faith we are proclaiming. This is what we are traipsing all over the Mediterranean to make clear, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's what we're proclaiming. That's the core of Christianity, that Jesus is king over the universe and that he rose from the dead to save us from our sins. That's something all genuine Christians agree on. Now, everything else, all those other little bubbles, is in some way and at some level disputable. You can disagree on other stuff, but if we've confessed that Jesus rules over us as our king and died to save us from our sins, we're still basically a Christian. Now, when Paul tells us not to get caught up in disputable matters, he's telling us to not spend too much time uh, or energy disagreeing, let alone bickering, over stuff that Christians can disagree about. Now, stuff like what? Well, I don't want to get too complicated, but most disputable matters fall into one of three categories. Disputable matters fall into the categories of doctrinal beliefs, like things we believe about God, worship practices, how to do church, and moral behaviors. A doctrinal belief that is disputable might be, you know, how exactly Jesus is going to come to judge the earth. Like, is it going to be a thousand years? Is that representative of something? Or how exactly God created the universe? Did he do it over millions and billions of years? Or did he do it through evolution? Or did he do it over six days? Or, you know, are people predestined to go to heaven or hell? Or do they have some sort of free will in the matter? Those are disputable matters. That is not what Paul went around the Mediterranean proclaiming. I'm here proclaiming that you have free will as a human being. A, a worship practice that is a disputable matter might be, you know, how old you have to be to be baptized and how much water you need to use. I'm here proclaiming that you need lots of water. Or whether women, what sort of roles women can have in, in churches. Or how often we should do communion. I'm here proclaiming that you must do it once a month. A moral behavior that is disputable might be whether or not the death penalty is justified, whether divorce is permissible, or if all Christians everywhere must be pro-life Republicans. Not what Paul went around the Mediterranean proclaiming. These are things that are important but are matters on which Christians can disagree in good conscience while still following Jesus. We proclaim Jesus as the way of salvation, not those things. Now, as you can imagine, there is still plenty of debate on what constitutes a disputable matter and what doesn't. Even as I'm, I'm talking, I'm sure a lot of you are like, well, Matt, what about this? What about this? What about this? You might be, you know, sending emails as we speak. 
What about the Trinity? Do you have to believe in the Trinity to be a Christian? Um, what about, you know, what about um, the Bible? Do you have to believe that the Bible is the literal word of God to be a Christian? You know, what about the Pope? A lot of Christians believe, a lot of Catholics believe that, uh, you know, you have to submit to the Pope in order to be a Christian. What about LGBTQ stuff? Can you be gay and be a Christian? All good questions. Of course, we are not going to answer those questions definitively this morning. I am speaking in safe generalities. The general idea, though, that Paul seems to be saying is that the kingdom of God can, can include different types of Christians that have theological and practical, even moral differences, but if they have been saved by the power of Jesus as the risen Messiah, they are still genuine Christians, and we need to accept them as such, and here's the key again, as God has accepted us. So that's Paul's main point. But before we wrap up this morning, I want to ask a more specific question of you that I think would be good to consider as we move forward in our study of this chapter. The question might help us know how the passage applies to each of us in a more specific way. So when it comes to disputable matters, here in this passage, like I said, Paul distinguishes between two types of believers, between you know, weak, strict believers and strong, lenient believers, and as we start this series, the question, you don't have to answer this question immediately, but I at least want you thinking about it, and think about it you know, without being defensive or, or subjective. Uh, the question that I want you to ask yourselves is, if you know, which am I? Am I weak or am I strong? Is my tendency towards the strictness of God's commands and the particular beliefs and practices of my style of Christianity, or is it towards the freedom I have in Christ and the leniency that Paul seems to endorse? You see, which type we are demonstrates how this passage and how the series are going to impact us. If you're weak, for example, God has a few words in particular for you this morning, words to the weak. Like we've said, the weak like or tend towards strictness. If you're weak, you like rules and clear boundaries when it comes to faith. You probably have an opinion, opinions on whether or not someone is a Christian because, you know, they don't do this and they don't do this and they do this and, and they think this and, and they don't think that. You also like to talk about Jesus, but you, you've got like your favorite pet theological topics that you like to talk about as much as you like to talk about Jesus. Uh, now, please don't be offended by God labeling you weak. <laughs> I know a lot of you are actually feeling defensive right now in your hearts. You know, I'm not weak, Pastor Matt, call me weak. I'm not weak, I'm strong. Um, just for the record, I'm not calling you weak. God is calling you weak. <laughs> Word of God. Weak. Word of God. <clears throat> Be assured also that being weak is actually not altogether a terrible thing. Every type of Christian has opinions and rules they feel passionate about. That's actually not that terrible. Uh, when I was in college at Truman State, for example, I went to a, a college church, uh, a campus ministry that was uh, wonderful. Um, and at this uh, campus ministry, they had a lot of people who talked a lot about a very specific way of baptizing people. Uh, and they talked about this very particular way of baptizing people as much as they talked about Jesus. It was like Jesus in baptism, Jesus in baptism, Jesus in baptism. And I was actually, over the years, I became grateful for it because, frankly, I'd never thought about baptism that much. I, I actually came to admire their conviction. 
It's not all bad to care strongly about stuff, traditions and, and issues and certain interpretations of the Bible. The danger comes when we care too much about them and let those issues distract us from Jesus and separate us from each other, which can happen oh so easily. A while back, for example, I expressed a theological opinion on how I interpret the book of Genesis that upset some people, which is fine. I got a strongly worded letter from a member telling me he thought I was wrong, still fine. But then he said that I wasn't a true Christian and he couldn't listen to my sermons anymore. Not fine. That's the danger of being a weaker brother, that we require other people to share our opinion on disputable matters. But that's not going to work. I mean, who are we to think we're right about everything? We need to accept people with different opinions, welcome them gladly, even learn from them. We don't have to agree. To accept one another doesn't mean we have to agree with them. And we can still debate these things. This is a safe space, but it's not that sort of safe space where you can't you know, have to agree and can't debate. To accept one another doesn't mean to not debate. To accept one another means to recognize that if God has welcomed someone else by virtue of their faith in Jesus Christ, who are we to do anything different than that? If you're a weaker brother, that's God's word to you. But what might be God's word to the strong? What about those of you whose tendency is toward leniency and freedom when it comes to faith? Well, first off, if you're strong, be careful that you don't wear that label with any sense of pride. Weaker brothers shouldn't be unsettled by being labeled weak, and stronger brothers shouldn't let the label strong go to their heads. We'll talk about this more over the course of, of the series, but to be strong actually implies responsibility more than it does uh, for, to, responsibility to care for the weaker brother. Uh, being strong is more of a responsibility than an honor, really. Additionally, if you're strong, you need to know that there are dangers to being the more lenient, stronger brother. Paul has actually, actually already pointed out the first danger, that the stronger brother tends to judge the weaker brother as unsophisticated. In all honesty, this is my tendency, and it's one that I am constantly repenting of and trying to keep in check. I mean, when I run into people uh, with strong opinions on how to be a Christian other than just following Jesus, I tell myself a lot, well, you know, you know that person. Hasn't been to seminary. They don't get it. Or that person's kind of uneducated, hasn't read as many books, you know. They'll come around once they learn to read. That's bad. I'm confessing that. Sure, I'm being funny. But I'm actually confessing that. I mean, my arrogance is nauseating to our Father. And I run into this attitude myself whenever I hear from people who think I don't dress nicely enough to be a pastor, you know? Uh, whether it's jeans or tennis shoes uh, or, or, or hats or hair that clearly needs a haircut. Uh, Plenty of people think I would expect more from a pastor when it comes to dress. They might even quote verses to me from the Old Testament about making sure you bring your best bull to the altar which means I should preach in a suit. It's hard for me, you know, when I hear that, not to, on the inside, roll my eyes, call them names under my breath, and, and move on feeling superior. That's bad. Again, that's a confession. I could go to hell for that. I should. But it's not just looking down on others, as, as I, is, is my temptation, that is the danger of being the stronger brother. Another danger is a lack of conviction. The problem with the weaker brother the problem with the weaker brother is making the message of Christianity too big 
You know, like you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to believe in this and this and this and this and this and this, and you have to do this and this and this and this and this. The problem with the, 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 more, the, the more lenient, stronger brother is that we actually make the message of Christ too small. All you gotta do is believe in Jesus, but everything else doesn't matter. You know, baptism doesn't matter, Bible doesn't really matter, politics doesn't really matter, sexual purity doesn't matter, it's just Jesus, right? Well, yes and no. The other stuff does matter. It's at least worth arguing about politely. Creation is worth arguing about, the Bible is worth arguing about, sexuality is worth arguing about. The danger of being strong is that in a desire to get along, we wash over our differences, but those differences matter. Oftentimes, there is more at stake than we think. So which are you then? Weak or strong? Is your tendency towards spiritual leniency or theological strictness? Is your temptation to look down on the weak or to judge the strong? Whatever our tendency, God's challenge for us this morning is the same. We need to accept one another as God has accepted us. I mean, what right do we have not to accept others when God has accepted them? That person whose faith you don't get or whose politics you don't agree with or whose theological opinions drive you batty, if, you, if they believe in Jesus Christ as one who died and rose again to save them from their sins, they are as much your brother and sister as anybody could possibly be. Is it really your business to judge them as not good enough for this church, for his love, for his kingdom, for your time? Who are we as terrible sinners to judge anyone anyway? I mean, think about it. Think about the craziness of God accepting you or I. Think about the scandal of a perfect God welcoming, gladly welcoming you or I into his presence. I mean, the idea that a holy, perfect God would accept any of us sinful, arrogant, idolatrous, judgmental, immoral, deplorable human beings into his presence, into his kingdom is crazy. What right do any of us have to sully the perfection of his presence with our filth and dirt? None. But he overcame that impossibility because of his great love for us. At great cost, he came to earth and offered a sacrifice so that we could be forgiven and we could live forever in his presence. I mean, the the, the chasm between God and sinful humanity is infinite, but he bridged it out of his love for us. By comparison, the chasm between us and our brother or sister with whom we slightly disagree is a few inches. God bridged this chasm and we can't bridge this chasm? Yes, we can. In Jesus Christ, we can. As God accepts us into his presence, despite our sins and mistakes, the least we can do is gladly accept others into our lives, into our homes, into our churches. It's not our place to judge or condemn them. That's God's role. He will do it. It's our place to love, welcome, and accept our brothers and sisters as God has accepted us. Paul has a lot more to say about this. Come back next week. We'll keep talking. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Paul's strongly worded letter. Thank you that in the love of God, 
And in the message of your word, you give us resources to be able to uh, see past sometimes even profound differences and disagreements and recognize our common faith in Jesus Christ, who as your divine representative, divine human representative, came to earth to reveal your love and then die on the cross so that we could be forgiven and then rose from the dead to show us that death is not the end and that through our belief in you and our faith in your son, uh, we have access to eternal life in your kingdom as forgiven saints. And because of your love and your grace, which crossed heaven and earth to include us, we can find a way to gladly welcome and fellowship with others, others in the kingdom, who don't eat meat. Oh, the crime. We can find a way. It might not be easy or, or simple, but uh, that way is love, that way is grace, as you showed us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for uh, the chance to worship you here this morning and to be in your presence and to give you the praise you deserve. I pray that you continue to transform our hearts into people who love you and to love others with that same love. Here at Rooftop, uh, we like to talk about lots of things, but we are here to praise and worship Jesus more than anything. It is in Christ alone that we stand. Christ alone in whom our hope rests. We pray these things in your name.